Our focus this evening is going to be on Jesus' last words from the cross, seven particular words that he said. Um, I've asked some of the men of the church to help me to give the message tonight, and and so you'll see various men coming up uh, to the pulpit uh, to share a, a reflection on one of those seven words. It is amazing that in Jesus' final moments, as his life is ebbing away, even then he is teaching. Uh, Even then, he is loving, and we can learn much from seven brief words from the Savior on the cross. Please pray with me. Father, as we look at your word, as we look at the final words of your Son on the cross, I pray that your words would have power. Well, they do have power, but I pray that we would experience that and be moved by that and be convicted by that and be encouraged by that. So, Father, bless our time as we examine the precious words of your precious Son. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To some of us, the cross has become so familiar that we forget about the sheer horror of what was going on. Uh, Kent Hughes helps us recover the sense of shock and revulsion that we should feel when he writes this, that the cosmic trauma had begun. There never had been such pain as physical and spiritual evil now came against Jesus in terrible conjunction. Body and soul recoiled. The initial shock of crucifixion had rendered him paralyzed and quivering. Physical disbelief screamed from severed nerves, and an even greater spiritual horror closed in. He would soon become sin. And what makes this moment all the worse is that those nails are being pounded into the skin of an innocent man, the only innocent man who's ever lived. More than that, he is the perfect and holy Son of God. And after a three-year ministry of loving God and loving people and teaching the crowds and, and healing the sick and revealing the truth about the Father, he finds himself fastened to two rugged pieces of wood. It was the greatest injustice that had ever been committed in human history. Man and his hatred for God actually put God to death. And the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth are shocking. You would think that immediately Jesus would hurl words of angry condemnation towards his murderers, crying out, Father, pay them back. Father, may they burn in hell forever. Instead, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In one sense, that is absolutely shocking. In another sense, to those who have been listening very carefully to what Jesus has been saying, no one would be surprised at all. Because Jesus once said, you have heard you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
And Jesus' point is that God is a God of kindness and benevolence, and he extends this kindness to everyone, not just to the good, but to the evil, not just to his friends, but to his enemies. Even in his dying moments, Jesus is seeking the good of those who are killing him. What's more, even in his dying moments, Jesus is seeking to fulfill the whole purpose that he came uh, into the world in the first place. Just a few chapters before the cross, Jesus says in Luke 19 that he came to seek and save the lost. Think about it. Even on the cross, Jesus is an evangelist. Even as his life is ebbing away, his great desire is to see people saved, forgiven, and reconciled to God. Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. That doesn't mean that Jesus' murderers are not culpable of anything. They certainly are. That's why they need forgiveness. But Jesus' point is that they do not realize the full magnitude of the sin that they are committing, of the horror that they are participating in. These first of his final words are shocking, but they can also provide great comfort to everyone in this room who has sinned, which is everyone in this room. Because if Jesus desires forgiveness and reconciliation with his murderers, it means that even the worst of sinners is not beyond the hope of God's grace. Philip Ryken writes that the Savior's words demonstrated his redemptive purpose in dying on the cross. If Jesus was willing for the Father to forgive the very men who murdered him, then what sinner is beyond the reach of his mercy? Surely anyone who repents will be saved. When his enemy said, crucify, Jesus said, forgive. And a man who says that is willing to forgive anyone, even people like us, no matter what we've done, as long as we come to him in faith. And so as we contemplate the cross tonight, if you're a believer, you should not leave this room feeling any condemnation, because through trusting in him, his condemnation on the cross for your sins counts for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The price for your sins has been paid. If you're in this room tonight as an unbeliever, you don't have to leave this place tonight under condemnation because Jesus, an innocent man, paid the price for guilty sinners like you. Trust in him, and you'll find that your guilt was taken on his shoulders, and his perfect innocence will be given to you as his gift because, because he loved his enemies so much to make them his friends through his death. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There on Calvary, three men, three men hung on a cross. One, the God-man, hung there receiving the punishment of the many, receiving ridicule and mockery. Save yourself, they cry. This is the king of the Jews, they sarcastically title him. A man on each side of Christ, both condemned for crimes and offenses they committed. One man mocks God, questions his claim, haughtily cries that God should save himself. The other man rebukes the first, knowing that while they hang there, guilty, Christ was innocent. Are we, any, are we any better than the mocking thief on the cross? I certainly am not. All have fallen short. Romans 3.23. I sin against my holy and righteous God. I show my arrogance by taunting God in my sin and disregard his lordship. I hang there, naked, ashamed, condemned, humiliated, mocking my Lord by sinning against him by the minute, dying and dead in my trespasses. But God... Two of my favorite words in Scripture, but God. Christ took mercy on that second thief. He proclaimed to that man that today you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, was that man going to be removed from the cross and physically saved? No. Scripture teaches us that we are never physically safe as sojourners in this world, nor does Scripture tell us that all will be well at all times. No, Christ did only what the divine could do, save that man's soul for eternity. He promised that man that he would enjoy Christ in paradise. Christ has taken mercy on me, a depraved thief. His salvation is given, it is not earned. There was nothing in which I or that second thief could boast or take pride. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We can bring just as much to the table as those men hung beside the cross, beside Christ. Anything I could bring to God are but filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah 64. Therefore, the power of salvation was solely of the broken, mocked and humiliated Christ on the cross. He hung there not for our pride, but for the glory of the Father. For the glory of the Father to save a wretched, unworthy person like that thief, thief, like me. For the glory of God because of his great love for us. For the glory of the Father to have his elect in his presence, communing with him for eternity. In Isaiah, the prophet gives a picture of what that communing will be like in eternity. This is one of the clearest Old Testament references to the cross and the conquering of Christ over death for us. The prophet says in chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The prophet speaks of a great feast where people of all types will commune together with God, as it says in Revelation 7. The curse of the fall that we experience in Genesis 3 and the, will be removed and death will be conquered. Salvation of his people has been secured, as it says in Hebrews 10. That is what we remember and celebrate tonight and this weekend. Unbeliever, the time is now. Stop mocking Christ and look on him with humility and acknowledge him as Lord. Repent of your mockery and sins and put your faith in the Christ we hung on the cross. Recognize your sin and understand that salvation is not something you can obtain on your own through works or of not breaking the law, but that it is a gift, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, through that man hung on the cross alone. Believe in him and you too can enjoy the feast in paradise, as it says in John 3.16. Believers, look on Christ with humility. Be reminded that just like the thief, there is nothing in us that is worth saving and be humbled by it. Give thanks for God's mercy. Rejoice in his salvation. Trust that when the Lord said we will be with him, that, we, that he will never let us go. Hold fast to the truth that all the Father gives to Christ will be raised to new life, as it says in John 6. Church, let us look toward the feast in paradise with hope, rejoicing hearts, and assurance. John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I want to share with you three observations from this text along with some application for us all. First, notice with me the uncircumstantial love of Christ, 
the uncircumstantial love of Christ. Our Lord is at this moment in his darkest hours. Not only is this the most painful, physically painful moment in his life, this is the most agonizing, emotionally draining, and spiritually daunting time that he has ever faced. Hung on the cross, beaten, mocked, thirsty, physically weak and injured, and no doubt tortured in his mind by the pounding of anticipation from the knowledge that not long from now he will drink down the cup of his Father's wrath down to the very last drop and is to be treated as a sinner, paying the due penalty for every sin that all of his people had ever, were currently, and will ever commit in the future. And your sins, Christian, your sins were amongst them which in that day added to his suffering. Stressful, without measure, this situation must have been to our Lord. Can you think back to the most stressful day that you have ever had in your life? Can you recall the stress, the, the panic, the lack of clarity of mind, indecisiveness perhaps? When stress has affected our cognitive abilities, I'm willing to bet that most of us worry only about ourselves and how we can alleviate the current situation to get ourselves out of it as soon as possible. But our Lord, abandoned by the eleven disciples except for John and a group of women, including his mother, despite his suffering and pain, displays a glorious, uncircumstantial love. Uncircumstantial for that very reason that despite the circumstances, that even in his darkest hour, our Lord has the welfare of his own at the very forefront of his mind. Despite the fact that he is about to depart this world, despite the fact that he is standing underneath the coming tsunami of God's wrath, he is concerned about his people. He is concerned about his mother. Do you see this uncircumstantial love? Selfless, even while enduring his self-sacrifice. Suffering, yet still serving. Dying, but still devoted to the care of those whom He loves. What comfort should this be to us if our Lord cared this much for His own as He is suffering and about to pay the penalty for their sins and ours? How confident ought we to be that now that the penalty has been paid, and He has been raised from the dead, rewarded with the fruits of His labor, and has been seated at the right hand of the Father with all power and authority, that He cares for us, and takes care of us, and loves us, intercedes for us. What a friend! What a Savior! In His uncircumstantial love, He also fulfills the law. And so our second observation, the uncircumstantial law keeper. The uncircumstantial law keeper. 
He lived his whole life without sin. Lived an obedient life, fulfilling the law with every breath so that he could be our perfect substitution. Regardless of the circumstances, he kept the law perfectly. Never made excuses. Never lied to himself to ease his mind out of fulfilling his rightful duties. And while on the cross, he continues to keep the law. In the instance of our current text, he is in keeping with the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. And gives us an example of perfect law-keeping and carrying out of the law to its fullest extent. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think we can say that Jesus had already honored his father and his mother. He was about to die. Right? He had lived a life of honoring his father and his mother. And I could be wrong, but I feel pretty confident in saying that making arrangements for his mother to be taken care of after his death while he is currently being killed was not something that the law required of him in the sense that had he not done this, he would have sinned. But rather, he loved to go above and beyond in keeping the law. And so look how even in his suffering, in spite of the circumstances, he not only continues to carry out the letter of the law, but exemplifies the spirit of it to us. The spirit of it. And so as a good son, as an uncircumstantial law lover and keeper, out of love for his mother despite the fact that he is about to take upon himself the sins of the world, he makes sure his mother will be taken care of in his absence. Now, Mary has likely been a widow for some time, and Jesus has been the primary protector and provider. And so he now entrusts the care of his widowed mother to his beloved disciple. He says to Mary, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. Jesus takes care of his people in all circumstances. And he is the greatest example and model to us of how we ought to keep the law. Which leads me to our final observation as we see an example here of unreserved obedience. Unreserved obedience. Notice, all it took was for Jesus to speak and for John to but look upon his loving Savior up on the cross and hear him making a request, Behold your mother. And without reservation, without thinking about the logistics or the finances or what his friends or what his wife or what his kids or even Jesus' own brothers would think about him bringing Mary into his care, right? Without hesitation, because the request came from his dear Lord who was upon the cross suffering, We read in our text, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
This, dear brothers and sisters, is a great example of unreserved obedience that a Christian should render unto Christ, who is no longer on the cross, but exalted in glory. On this darkest but brightest of days, while on the cross and suffering, our Lord said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. And to John he said, Behold your mother. This evening I say to any of you who has not believed in Christ, Behold your Lord. Behold a Savior who is willing to die upon the cross. Who is willing to be cursed so that if you repent and believe in Him, you may be blessed, saved from the wrath that is to come, and given eternal life. Behold a Savior who calls upon you at this very hour to place your faith in Him and turn from your sins forevermore. And to my Christian brothers and sisters this evening, may we behold our uncircumstantial law keeper and lover of our souls. May we come to know Him in greater and greater degrees. May we grow in the confidence of the knowledge of the love that our Lord has for us. And may we be renewed in our minds by it and transformed in our living through it. May we become unreservedly obedient children of God for the sake of Him who suffered in our place on Calvary some 2,000 years ago. darkness that had fallen over the land had likely brought a growing silence with it. But in a moment, that silence is broken by a loud cry. The gospel writer Mark records those words in chapter 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Four words, spoken in Aramaic, called a cry of dereliction, confused his hearers as they wondered if perhaps he was calling Elijah to save him. This cry, however, was not about his rescue, but about his mission, a mission that placed him under judgment. Jesus' words described by scholars as some of the most profoundly mysterious words in the Bible are the opening words of Psalm 22, known as the song of the innocent sufferer. The scribes of his day would have made the connection, and those who knew this psalm should have ultimately realized that Jesus was proclaiming that was all about him. This psalm written by David speaks of someone enduring a kind of torment and suffering that is undeserved, and there is a crying out for God to rescue him. Jesus knows he is innocent, 
not only of any crime worthy of execution, but innocent of any sinful thoughts or behavior his entire life. But instead of commendation, he gets condemnation. And on the cross, he finds himself under the judgment of God, living the very experience described in this psalm. And it's incredible that Jesus himself, through the Holy Spirit, inspired David to write the words of this psalm. And then a thousand years later, he utters these very same words from the cross. This was not, however, the only purpose of pointing to Psalm 22. Jesus' lament communicates a a divine, genuine abandonment. He knew the whole psalm was about him and also how joyfully and victoriously the psalm ends. But his human experience was telling him something much different. There is no lessening the force of these words or trying to explain them away. Jesus knows that in this moment, he is abandoned by his Father. On the cross, Jesus took our dreadful record of sin and rebellion upon himself. And as the Father looks at him, the pure and innocent one, he sees the guilt of billions of sinful lives, and he holds the Son accountable for them all. Hour after hour, he receives wave after wave of God's wrath, while a seemingly endless record of our sin debt rolls on and on. He is the ultimate innocent sufferer, and this abandonment is the immense pain that he is experiencing, much greater than the physical effects of the beatings, the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and his feet, splinters from the wood running into his back as he instinctively pushes up for air while he suffocates. He is the substitutionary atonement for sinful mankind. The wrath of God the Father was being poured out on Jesus in full measure. Wrath that you and I deserve. Would his suffering cease and victory be proclaimed? Yes, Psalm 22 reminds us of that. But first, in his flesh, Jesus had to be cut off from the unhindered fellowship that had eternally existed with the Father. This was his purpose in coming, to live a life that we could never live, to suffer a punishment that was owed to us. What a glorious exchange. The innocent one declared guilty, and the guilty declared innocent. Now let us not forget that Jesus has both a divine and a human nature. In his cry, he expressed suffering in his humanity, but he also grieved in his spirit over the, in, over the face of the Father being turned away from him. And we must also remember that in no way, at any time, was the unity of the Trinity ever broken or compromised. In our fallen state and with our finite minds, brothers and sisters, this is hard to fully comprehend. But when we consider the cross, it should cause us to wonder that God the Father, through the obedience of Jesus the Son, went through this for us, His people, that He might show the great love with which He loved us by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The next of Jesus' statements comes from John 1928, and it is, I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Right after I agreed to, with, um, to speak on this particular verse, told Deemer that I would do it. I was driving down the road from coming home from work, and I thought, I was thinking of these words, I thirst, and all of a sudden I was overwhelmed with the humanity of Christ and what those two words say about his humanness. We have all heard many times that God was, is both, or, sorry, Jesus is both fully God and fully man, right? But I don't know about you, but somehow in the back of my mind, I think that Jesus was somehow different because he was Jesus, because he was God, his, his humanness was somehow modified, right, by his deity. But this verse tells us that that's not so, that Jesus was human just like us. And if when he was helping his dad, he hit his thumb with a hammer, it hurt, and it swelled up, and it bruised. And when he walked long distances, he got tired and hot and sweaty and dirty. And when he didn't eat, he got hungry. At Lazarus' tomb, he wept with sadness. When thorns were driven into his head, it hurt just like it would hurt to us. Jesus was human just like us. As Deemer pointed out a, few, a couple weeks ago in the introduction to James, Jesus was so much like us that when he was raised, his brothers who were with him every day watched him, lived with him, saw nothing in him to indicate that he was anything other than their biological brother. The physical pain and suffering that he experienced on the cross were just like we would experience if we were beaten and nailed to a cross. It hurt. One of the prophecies John referred to was probably Psalm 22, as Peter just mentioned, where it says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus suffered just like we would have suffered. He hurt and he thirsted. But Jesus' statement that he was thirsty causes us not to think just of his physical thirst, but also of the spiritual thirst that he was experiencing at that time. The thirsting of his soul. There's a hunger and a thirst inside of every one of God's children to be close to God, to know him more intimately, to be known by him, 
to be in close fellowship with God. And certainly, if, that was, if that's the case with us, it was certainly the case with Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced a sensation that was unique to that moment in his existence. He experienced a thirst that he had never before experienced and never would experience again. He experienced the terrible darkness and emptiness of separation from his father. Years earlier, his father had said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us Jesus became sin. He became my sin, and he became your sin. He became what his father hated. And so for the first time, God the Father turned his face away from his son. And Jesus experienced the terrible thirst of having the relationship with his beloved father broken. He experienced the thirst of the rich man in hell who said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Ironically, it was a cup that led to Jesus' terrible thirst. The cup that his father asked him to drink, the cup of suffering. In Matthew 26, we read, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus did the will of his father. He drank the cup his father asked him to drink, all of it. He drank the cup that he was asked to drink so that we could drink from the cup that he offers to us. To the woman at the well, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, we read this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And in the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 22, we read this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus was made sin that we might be made righteous. He was broken that we might be healed. And he thirsted so that we might never thirst again.
The next scripture we're going to look at tonight is John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now many of us have been with a loved one in their final moments, and we cling on to every last word they whisper before they take their last breath. It's not a situation we look forward to or that we desire to be in. <clears throat> but we do cherish these last moments that we have with them, and we will remember with clarity what their final words were to us. Whether they're words of comfort, wisdom, or a final expression of love, these words in that moment will never leave us, and it will always have significant meaning in our lives. Now, as Jesus was in his final moments, approaching his own final breaths, he also knew the power and the significance that his final words would have to us. Now, while many thought that they had finally silenced him, Jesus' ministry to the world was not over quite yet. For in his last few breaths, he continued to teach us with a loud cry for all to hear, it's finished. Now, we're all familiar with this phrase, but what exactly was finished at the cross? Well, the phrase, it is finished, comes from the Greek word teleo, meaning to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish, to fulfill, or to be paid in full. It implies something that's been in the works for a period of time. And we're given over 300 prophecies concerning these works and the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled, Jesus finished all of them. And tonight I want to share just a few with you. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know from the accounts of the Gospels that Mary, a young, unmarried virgin, was chosen by God to conceive through the Holy Spirit and give birth to the Messiah, Jesus, fulfilling what was written. Isaiah 53.3 tells us, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus experienced much grief and much sorrow throughout his life, some of which were being rejected by his own family, as we heard earlier, being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by one of his very own disciples, and even being denied not once but three times by another disciple who claimed that he loved him in one of his darkest and most difficult hours. He experienced more hurt and more rejection than any of us will ever know. Yet despite that sorrow and grief and his rejection and denial by some of the very people that he came to save, he never faltered in his example to how to, how to live a holy life pleasing to God. Isaiah 53, 9 tells us he had done no violence <clears throat> and there was no deceit in his mouth. <clears throat> He lived the perfect life that we couldn't so that he could ultimately give himself over to be the perfect one-time sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin, our sin, the penalty that we rightly deserve. 
He was handed over to be whipped, to be beaten, nailed to a cross, and suffer a horrific and painful death. He paid a debt that we can never repay. He shed his blood to satisfy the demands of justice, and he did it voluntarily so that we can be at peace and have unbroken access to the Holy Father. As Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's because of these things and many more that Jesus can confidently and triumphantly cry, It is finished. It's with confidence that we can believe his work is complete because he fulfilled all that was written by the prophets. He accomplished perfect obedience. He resisted temptation so that he could feel for us and show us how to rest in the power of God and resist sin as well. By by bearing the penalty for our sins, he destroyed and brought to an end the power of Satan and sin in our lives. And because the penalty for our transgressions against the perfect and holy Father were were paid in full through his foretold virgin birth, his perfect life, and his sacrificial death on the cross. What Christ finished was not a one-time accomplishment. It was a completed work that from the very beginning that he came to do. It was foretold he would finish it. It's presently finished, and it will remain finished for eternity. So in his last prayer, before his arrest, he can say with assurance, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What Jesus finished signifies a successful and completed work so that he can confidently say, I did exactly what I came to do. And by his completed work, we ourselves can also say with confidence that we are, if we are in Christ, we are new creations. The old has passed away and the new has come. Jesus' final word on the cross is recorded in Luke chapter 23, 46. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Uh, there's, a, there's a popular teaching out there. You'll probably hear a lot of TV preachers say this, and, and it's popular in some churches as well, that that when Jesus died, he, he, went to, he went to hell to be tortured by Satan and his demons um, uh, for, for three nights, three days and three nights. And the logic there is that if Jesus is going to pay for, fully for our sins, uh, that means he has to go to hell. But to believe that is to forget what Jesus had already said to the thief on the cross next to him. He didn't say, truly, I say to you this day, you will be with me in the flames of hell. He didn't say that. Uh, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. And as we just heard Carrie 
talk about. He didn't say, uh, it's almost finished. Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus doesn't need to go to hell because he's already been there. Christ on the cross is suffering the full wrath of God. We heard Peter talk about that that cry, that, that scream from the depths of Jesus being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I remember R.C. Sproul saying that's what you're hearing there is the scream of the damned in that moment. Jesus, after he said it is finished, he did not say, Satan, into your clawed hands do I now place myself in. Instead, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus isn't going to hell. He's going to be reunited with his Father at long last. But more than that, Jesus' final words are quoting Psalm 31. It's amazing how much Scripture Jesus has on his mind in his final moments, isn't it? And in quoting a verse from Psalm 31, Jesus likely aims to bring the entire psalm to the minds of those bystanders at the cross and to us today. Psalm 31 was written by David, who was writing as an innocent sufferer in distress and in grief. That's in verses 7 and 9 in Psalm 31. He writes of his strength failing and of wasting away, that's in verse 10, uh, becoming a reproach to his neighbors, an object of dread to his acquaintances, verse 11. And he writes of enemies and adversaries scheming against him, laying a trap for him, slandering and lying about him, verse 13. Does all of this sound familiar? Yeah, that happened to David. But as he wrote those things about himself, he also, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, was writing about what his descendant, the son of David, would experience to a much greater degree. Psalm 31 is about a man who is afflicted and persecuted by enemies. It's about an innocent sufferer who on one level seems to be totally forgotten by God. This is the psalm that's on Jesus' mind in his final moments. But the part of the psalm he chooses to focus on is very important. The final note that escapes the lips of Jesus is very critical because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what is welling up in Jesus' heart in those final moments as his last seconds tick by is a hope and a trust in his Father. And he quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Because the thrust of Psalm 31 is not despair. It is instead anticipation of deliverance, victory, and total vindication. David writes in Psalm 31, for you are my rock and my fortress. That's verse 3. He says, I trust the Lord, verse 6. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you've seen my affliction, verse 7. You've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, verse 8. I trust you. You are my God, verse 14. My times are in your hands, verse 15. Lying lips will be silenced. The slander against the righteous will stop, verse 18. And then the climax of the psalm is in verses 23 and 24. It says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Jesus' final cry from the cross was a faithful expectation of deliverance and vindication at the hands of God the Father. But that deliverance and vindication 
did not come on Friday. As far as Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jewish authorities were concerned, it was all over. And the, this troublemaking carpenter from Galilee, well, he's finally gone. He's finally done away with. And in the eyes of the religious leaders, he's proven to be a sinner under God's curse. Now, they were right about one thing. Jesus was under God's curse. But they were wrong in thinking that his sin brought him under the curse. No, our sin brought him under the curse. As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And what comes with the promised spirit? Well, many things being made children of God's household, heirs to a divine inheritance, freedom and forgiveness of sins, total reconciliation with God. Because if Jesus really did fully and finally pay for our sins on the cross, we too, in our dying breath, we will be able to say with Jesus, with 100% confidence, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we can have full confidence knowing that when we pass from this life to the next, we will be with him in paradise because it is finished and Jesus has paid it all. Let's pray.